Today with Claire Byrne on RTE Radio 1 with Opal, Crossland, Corsa and Mocha. Three good reasons to visit the Opal Open Road event. Well, the Omicron variant, as you will have heard, has now been detected in 52% of reported cases of COVID and there are continuing fears on the effect that a significant increases in cases could have on the health system. For more on this uh, and the current situation in ICUs, I'm joined by Dr Coleman O'Loughlin, a consultant in the Matter Hospital. Good morning to you, Coleman. Uh, are you worried by the modelling figures and the scenarios that have been presented? Uh, good morning, Philip. Um, to be honest, yeah, I don't know. It's a simple answer. I think we're um, we're operating in a kind of a, a fairly evidence-free zone at the moment. Um, we do know that uh, what we do know is that there's likelihood this is a very, very transmissible virus, and that's been borne out by the rapidity of which the the, the virus has or the, the variant has become dominant. Uh, we're still lacking that kind of hard data on uh, on the um, how how severe this virus might be in terms of causing clinical infection uh, that leads to hospitalisation and intensive care. We don't know that yet, so um, we don't know to the, to the extent we'd like to know. It, I suppose is a better way of putting it. What, what we are concerned about is, is potential is is very real, and if you look across public health responses across the world, especially across the rest of Europe. Uh, Ireland is no outlier in that situation. Every public health system is saying the same thing. This is the potential to be very, very severe. And um, we should be, and I think that to sum it up, they're saying we should be prepared for the worst and maybe hope for the best. But I think preparing for the worst is what's, is what's happening. It's what our public health colleagues are telling us could happen. And without that evidence, um, it is probably um, the only option they have is, is to take that approach. Uh, does that make me worried uh, as an intensive care doctor? Yes, it, it potentially does. Um, but yeah, we've been here before. We've been we've seen modelling figures that mm. have. Um, well, I was just going to say we have been here before, relatively recently, with a very large percentage of the population vaccinated, and we managed to flatten the delta curve then, without having to go to full lockdown. Have you any shred of optimism in you that we would be able to do the same thing again now? Um, it depends on what your target is. If your target is to continue as we are, that that doesn't fill me with optimism because what's happening at the moment, even though we've flattened the curve, we still have, you know, a third of our ICU capacity is taken up by COVID patients. We still have severe limitations on the amount of elective surgery, cancer surgery that we can get done. We're squeezing the last bit out of the system to get, you know, basic healthcare is is is, is not happening. You know, it's, it's only squeezing in the really uh, difficult cases. That's that's where we are at the moment. So, if that's where we're staying, that's still pessimistic. Um, but this concept of having being overwhelmed and cases coming in that we can't deal with, that's what the projected figures would suggest. I mean, there's a number there, 400 extra cases requiring intensive care when we already have... Um, 300 patients in the intensive care system at the moment, or 270 in, in, in the moment. So we don't have the capacity to take on that that much extra. We're hoping that this you know, f- extraordinary re- uh, rapidity or rise in uh, booster vaccination, it has been extraordinary, uh, to be honest, that that will help a lot and the response that the public will take in terms okay. of social distancing will help. But again, again, just the evidence in this is, is, is zero. Um, and we are just um, uh, hopeful that all of the, all of the measures will work. Um, Phil Hay, the General Secretary of the INMO, told Katie Hannan on this station on Saturday that a nurse manager told her she had made four phone calls to a private hospital who refused to take patients on transfer. When you have so little capacity left, are you worried by that 
failure yeah. of the left hand and the right hand not to work together. Well, I mean, I think I think the, both hands are doing the same thing. I mean, there's an extraordinary extraordinary amount of healthcare happening in private hospitals throughout the country, um, and a lot of it is for public patients um, being fitted in alongside the private system. Um, you know, I, I think uh, there is very little space in that system, um, and I'm aware because we do a lot of business with the matter private down the road from us, and we transfer down as many patients as we can, and they simply don't have a whole lot of capacity because they're doing a lot of good work as well. Okay. There's a lot of cancer work being done in those hospitals. Right, well, if, that's, good work. if that's so the case, not, then, not if that's the case, then Coleman, is there something to be considered here in going to a COVID and non-COVID hospital situation, or would that not have any meaningful impact? Um, and I think that's, that's that's a very important point. I think I think what's been demonstrated um, by the way things are working in, say, let's say, the private sector is that healthcare can happen in in the middle of a pandemic and throughout a pandemic um, if you provide safe environments. And if, for example, we had um, purely elective only hospitals in in the system, and we do have them, we have them in, say, in Cap Orthopaedic Hospital and other hospitals that that are, are they don't have emergency departments, so they can't be overwhelmed by ambulances coming in bringing patients in that are require urgent admission. Uh, so if we had um, you know, a system of elective-only uh, hospitals, yes, we have demonstrated to the private system. Where you would screen the- people well in advance of them coming in. Uh, for sure, yeah. This is being done even the public hospital. We screen everybody coming in for elective surgery. We are doing elective surgery in all hospitals at the moment. It's very tight in the public hospitals, and we're only able to get through you know very uh, urgent time, urgent cases, and it requires a whole lot of planning to get that done. But everybody is screened 48, 72 hours beforehand for COVID, and they're all asked um, to present with that certificate of, uh, of having been screened uh, before admission, and that's getting you know kind of elective hospitals only. Um, you know they're operating entirely, almost entirely in a COVID-free environment, and it's working very, very well. Um, and it just demonstrates that it can happen; it can be done. Okay. So it is a possibility, but to get those buildings up and running would take a, a significant amount of time. So it's, it's something we should aim for, but it's something that won't relieve uh, the pressures that might come down the line in the next couple of weeks. Coleman O'Loughlin in the matter, thank you very much. I'm joined also by Dr Ike Okafor, consultant in paediatric emergency medicine at Temple Street. Uh, Ike, you were particularly concerned now about this figure of 100,000 children on hospital waiting lists. Is that exclusively down to COVID or are you going to tell me it's multifactorial? Um, thank you for having me. Uh, it's uh, multifactorial. Um, COVID has, has played its part in this, but it's uh, multifactorial. I mean, we had children on waiting lists before COVID. And what are the other factors at play? Oh, there are, there are several other factors at play. Um, I've mentioned the impact of COVID, not just in reducing the capacity for hospitals to do elective cases, especially in the early part of COVID in 2020, uh, when uh, most elective activities were, uh, were reduced quite significantly to safeguard people, um, but also the effect that COVID has had on staff as well, um, in terms of staff you know, being sick and being out of work. We've also noticed that the COVID pandemic has had an adverse effect in some aspects of the health of children, um, especially mental health. Uh, and that has increased the number of children um, who are you know, looking for healthcare interventions. Um, also, we've had other issues. Um, we've been, you know, struggling to, you know, to keep staffing levels up. Um, we've not been able to adequately um, replace consultants who have retired. Um, we're struggling to retain staff. Um, the cyber attack didn't help us as well. 
Um, mm. So there have been so many factors that have resulted uh, in this. But. What's perhaps most alarming about that figure is that you're talking about 100,000 children that are not just being denied the medical intervention that they need, but 100,000 children who are effectively prevented, perhaps because of their condition, from being children. Absolutely. And I, I talk about not just the physical harm waiting for healthcare interventions is having on children, you know, physical and mental harm, but also the social harm. You know, children are missing days from school. Children are not playing with other children. You know, children are not allowed to be children. And this is an, a very important aspect of their health and their development. So a child waiting for several months uh, for a healthcare intervention has far-reaching effects on that child and their families. How do we work this through? Is it really just a matter of waiting until COVID becomes endemic, waiting until the IT system is fully operational uh, again and uh, can proof itself against future attacks? Or is there something else more immediate that should and could be done? No, I mean, uh, we can't wait for the pandemic to be over. Um, I mean, we, we have to ensure as much as possible, and it's difficult. Um, and I know the pressures we're having from acute patients coming through EDs, but we have to ensure that elective work goes on as much as possible. And uh, the solution to that is, you know, trying to increase the uh, bed capacity where possible, increasing the theatre capacity where possible, and ensuring we have adequate staff um, to be able to look after children. Um, the solution will not be immediate or short term, but I think we can work on it on the immediate and long term. Um, we need more infrastructure. We need to retain and recruit staff. Um, we need to ensure you know, that we find better, smarter, more efficient ways of working. But I mean, ultimately, I think the first thing is to make sure that pediatric healthcare is adequately resourced. The and unique thing about children, sorry, just cut you off there, is that you know, children aren't... aren't um, you know, they're not really, um, you know, the kind of patients with long-term, lifelong, expensive treatment. Most children who are on waiting lists have single issues that can often be fixed and dealt with, mm. and they and they return to healthy, effective lives. Um, so, you know, it's it's not it's not going to, you know, be too expensive to try and fix this. Is there any virtue in considering what Coleman O'Loughlin was just discussing there, a non-COVID and a COVID children's hospital, or because of the difficulties in diagnosing kids uh, or the way that COVID symptoms present in kids, that that wouldn't necessarily be as helpful in a paediatric setting? I mean, um, I, I was listening to what he was saying, and there, there is some merit in having kind of non-COVID, purely elective hospitals. Um, and that exists to some extent. I think he mentioned um, um, Kappa um, Orthopedic Hospital, um, yeah. Orthopedic Hospital, and they do a lot of um, pediatric cases as well. Um, but yes, um, we have to be creative in how we fix this. You know, it might involve the private sector. Um, I mean, you know, we we have to make sure that you know that as long as this pandemic continues, that you know, children um, continue to get the elective care that they need. Um, so. Yes, so um, every you know um, every option should be open. Ike Okafor, consultant in paediatric emergency medicine at Temple Street. Thank you very much. Now, what is happening in schools across the country? Because there was expected to be huge absenteeism rates this week due to fears among patients about the rising number of cases. I'm joined by Louise Tobin, principal of St. Joseph's Primary School in Tipperary Town, to see what the picture is with her. Good morning, Louise. 
Good morning, Philip. So, what happened at uh, roll call this morning? Yeah, attendance is quite good, actually, Philip. We've um, about 20% absent. Um, so, you know, a couple of children in each room, but um, our children are in this morning and they're presenting well. And uh, I suppose if school is open, children love school and uh, they want to go. So all good this morning. And what is the actual number then out of what is 160 or something like that in your school? Uh, we've 172. So we've about 29 absent. And how typical um, is that? Um, well, the pattern, I mean, it's, I've been tracking the attendance over the past couple of months. And to be honest, Philip, it's, you know, it's fairly in or around what we're usually seeing. We had a couple of extremes where we had 50% absent. Um, but, you know, it's been mostly along the 20%, between okay. 20 and 30. Um, now, you're not going to thank me for saying this, but please just indulge me for one second here, because, of course, every teaching day is a teaching opportunity and is one that is very, very important. But in a national school setting, these last couple of days before Christmas, there's not a huge amount of teaching that goes on, really, is there? Well, I suppose we can learn in lots of different ways, Philip, and we learn by maybe having a little party in our class. Um, we're going to be watching the pantomime um, uh, from the Helix, Little Red Riding Hood. We've been treated to that by the local school completion programme. And, I mean, we learn by doing so, being involved in those activities. Yeah. And they're lovely special days for the kids and ones that they will probably remember, God bless you, than any of the other more traditional or more formal teaching days. But when you're looking at the kind of potential public health calamity that we're facing now, they wouldn't be crucial days if they were missed, would they? I would totally agree with you. You know, the the, the last day or two of, of any term, um, there's a complete pullback from the, the, the teaching and learning. Um, so how are teachers feeling then about having to actually teach on these days, given what we're looking at? Oh, Philip, listen, we turn up for work. We've, we've worked tirelessly to keep our schools open. So we have absolutely no problem being here, I suppose, with the level of cases over the weekend. Um, and, you know, chatting to staff this morning and chatting to children. Um, the children have had good weekends as well. They've been visiting Santa. They've been shopping. They've been away in hotels. They've been at family gatherings. So, you know, Fair. bearing in mind that they are the only cohort non-vaccinated, we just really hope that we can keep the school community safe and well and that we can have a good Christmas and visit our elderly relatives and keep everyone safe. OK, well, I hope you can have a good Christmas because you guys all really, really deserve it. Louise Tobin, very Merry Christmas to you. Thank you very much for joining us this morning. Thanks also now to uh, Professor Kingston Mills, Professor of Experimental Immunology in Trinity, who joins us as well. Kingston, do we know enough about Omicron to know if what we are doing is enough or are we effectively throwing darts at a board with a blindfold on? Uh, good morning, Philip. Um, we know quite a bit and we're, we're knowing more by the day. What we do know for certain is that Omicron is more transmissible than Delta and the other variants that preceded Delta. Um, what we don't know for sure yet, whether it causes more severe disease, and the data from South Africa suggests that it is a milder disease, but that's very much influenced by the fact that a huge proportion of the population in South Africa have already been infected with Delta. So they have a, a level of natural immunity, which may make Omicron less severe. What we will know in about a week's time from data in the UK is whether it is more severe in people who've been vaccinated or people who have not been vaccinated because there's a high proportion of people 
in particular in London, 27% of the population in London have had no vaccine. And when they get exposed, some of them would, be, would have been infected, but the ones that haven't, when they get exposed to Omicron, and some of them inevitably will, we'll get a very clear picture of how dangerous this virus really is. But that'll come in about a week to 10 days' time. Uh, Dr Tony Houlihan scotched rumours that um, NEF had planned to meet on December the 30th to recommend a full lockdown. How likely do you think that something like that might end up coming to pass anyway? Um, I hope, for, you know, I don't think the country wants another lockdown. I think some, you know, uh, other measures uh, might be, you know, useful. I, I, I thought that the, the the restrictions at 8 p.m. dining and pubs was um, hard to understand, really. It's neither here nor there. I know that you're damned if you do and you're damned if you don't. And, and the government were on the one hand trying to keep a, a bit of uh, social activity going while trying to keep people safer. So it is a very very, very difficult balancing act. I appreciate that. But, you know, the virus doesn't stop transmitting mm. at 8 p.m. But, but perhaps, or it doesn't start before it. So, you know, I don't understand the logic behind it. Okay, well, maybe the logic is this, that when you listen to Tony Holohan this morning, he talked about us observing not just the law, but the, so not just the letter, but the spirit of the recommendations here. And the evidence is before, when we looked at the earlier Delta surge, that people do tend when the general message goes out, we need to monitor our behaviour and increase our social distancing, that by and large, that is what people, the great silent majority, have tended to do. And that is what has flattened the curve in the past. Not that they have stuck by the letter to what it is be that is being recommended. Many people have gone even further than that. No, I completely agree, and I think the, the public in Ireland have, have, have really bought into um, the restrictions more so than probably any country in the world, and, and have really helped, uh, you know, to reduce. We, we've had a, a relatively small number of hospitalisation and deaths compared with a lot of other countries, and that's directly down to a, a vaccines, but b but the, the the consequence of people, you know, buying into to uh, doing what they should be doing, the right things. But um, you know, I, I think it's a it's a it's a fine balancing act now between the vaccines and getting as many people boosted as possible. I mean, the reality of it are, and we know this now from data that has emerged in the UK last week, that um, two doses of any of the vaccines gives little or no protection against uh, Omicron, especially the AstraZeneca vaccine. And um, we do know as well that giving a third dose of an mRNA vaccine after two doses of any vaccine beforehand will give very good protection against symptomatic, 75% protection text okay. against symptomatic um, Omicron. So the booster is, is, is part of this, um, the, the solution to this, but we need to get them out quicker. But as you say, a week perhaps before we have a little bit more firm data on this, and until then we're probably stumbling around in the dark. Uh, Kingston Mills, thank you very much. Now coming up after the break, Fianna Fáil has abandoned its so-called charity lottery. 